My guest is Ben Judah. Ben Judah is an author and journalist and the author of a brand new book, This is Europe, The Way We Live Now. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Right, first things first, Ben. I mean, it, your book is very difficult to describe or at least to, to categorise. So, And you don't do much of an introduction at the beginning of the book to kind of set the scene, as it were, to prepare the reader. So how would you describe your book? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how I came to write this book. It's a sequel, in a sense, of a book I wrote, you know, before Brexit called This is London, which was an attempt to show how London had been transformed by immigration into a new global city. And that book, you know, it still has a kind of quite classic me as the narrator, the journalist kind of wanders around and meets people. And... Way that book works is I go from kind of tube stop and bus stop to bus stop, and there's a brief little description of me finding the person, meeting the person, and then you're under. Then you're you see you you listen to to that person tell their tell their story, and I wanted to kind of continue writing this series showing how familiar places are actually being transformed by the kind of modern world into places we can't really recognise. And I initially thought I wanted to write a book about France. And I went to France and I kind of travelled around uh, France from Paris to the Alps to the south. And I wrote 40, 50,000 words of another like quite classic book with me as the narrator. And I kind of absolutely hated it. <laughs> and I hated the sound of my own voice. I hated that figure of the kind of journalist narrator, it felt really kind of old fashioned Mm. and unnecessary and it just didn't really work. And I got myself, found myself in these sort of cheap hotels thinking, this style just doesn't really, it's not really sort of suitable for writing around about the the modern world. It's a real kind of post-colonial style that reached its apogee with you know, Porfiru in Africa or V.S. Naipaul sort of wandering around former British colonies. And anyone that the writer meets is on some level or another judged. They're turned into characters. And it's very different from what I actually love about being a journalist is that I kind of wander around Europe, I meet all kinds of different people and they tell me different things and I make up my own mind. I don't want to write a book where I wander around telling you what to think, judging all these different people I meet along the way. And I just felt I was getting in the way. So I took the decision to shoot the narrator, that the narrator would be taken to the edge of a cliff and pushed off and we'd all be the better for it. And the book would try and be as immersive as possible. So there wouldn't be me guiding you guiding you around going, hello, now we're sitting down with a refugee who's just crossed the Alps. And I think he's a jolly good fellow. You would just yeah. go from chapter to chapter to chapter and you'd be under, 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 under. You'd meet each of the different people, be in their, their minds. And the second realisation I came to was that I didn't want to write about France, was that all of the themes that I was interested in, which are you know, how immigration was changing that place, how technology was upending the patterns of people's lives, how climate change was transforming not only the European landscape, but European culture itself, how wars in Europe's periphery or now in Europe were kind of completely uh, remaking it and how behind every product were these completely dizzying supply chains. None of these were really French stories. And whenever I tried to get to the 
middle of a story, I found by the end of it, I was not in France at, at all. I realised it's a European it's a European book that actually I wanted to write. And the moment that really hit me, I wanted to do this European book. I was in Rotterdam and I'd kind of already decided to jettison the France book. I wasn't really sure what to do. And it was maybe I was just going to like throw it away. And I remember finding myself at a bus station very early in the morning, looking around at the people around me. And Rotterdam's a city that's now got a kind of been completely remade of a new majority by immigration. And I was looking at all the people in the bus station thinking, this is a kind of a very old city. These are completely new lives. And yes, this is it. This is the Europe that people don't talk about. This is the Europe that Americans don't see, that Brits don't see. And this is the, what I wanted my book to be about in their voices. Right. So the book is essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, a collection of 23 stories about real people and mm-hmm. Europe defined as the broader Europe, not obviously just the European Union, with its 450 million inhabitants, but the broader Europe, the wider Europe of 750 million inhabitants. So you took you 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 come across a bit of a, like a vagabond. You say you're wandering around Europe, finding yourself at a bus station in Rotterdam at three o'clock in the morning. How did you um apart from that, I won't pry too much about why you were doing these strange journeys, but more seriously, how did you go about identifying and locating your subjects, the subjects of your interviews? Well, I once I decided I wanted to do a book about Europe, I had a couple of decisions to make. And which Europe is it? You know, it's always very confusing when we're talking about Europe. Are we talking about a political entity, which is the European Union and its various onion-like layers? Or, or are we talking about a geographical um, cartographer's Europe? Or are we talking about a sort of wider cultural Europe, which in some senses can go all the way to Vladivostok and, you know, sort of Vladivostok? Or are we talking about countries that the European Union says are potentially European, which cartographers might not say are European, like Georgia or uh, Georgia or Armenia? And I decided to, I, I was sort of thinking about, I was sort of thinking about, uh, about this and I decided I wanted to go for a broader Europe and then how was I going to define, um, how was I going to explore that Europe? So for me, the key thing about how you experience life isn't really whether you're kind of British or French or, you know, Turkish. It's sort of what stage of life are you in? Where are you on Shakespeare's kind of ages of ages of man? So I wanted to see that broader Europe from every phase that I could interview from, you know, I wasn't going to interview a child. So from a teenager all the way to somebody kind of facing um, you know, facing facing death, because I can't kind of be a, a dead person. I would try if uh, the technology became possible. And it, I wanted to do, so I was going to do, wanted each phase of life, so, you know, teenagehood, becoming a man or or or, or woman, having children, ageing, facing death, wanted all of that in there. Then I wanted to have all of the European sort of major regions represented, right. sort of, kind of Atlantic archipelago or the British Isles, Scandinavia, the, um, you know, Iberia. Then I wanted to have, you know, obviously Europe's classes and racial diversity. That was very important for me for the book to be as close as possible to 50-50 in terms of gender and also to represent Europe's kind of sexual uh, diversity because Europe's uh, sexual diversity. Uh, then I wanted to have a real spread of, of jobs I wanted to have people, I wanted to have lawyers, but also gas workers. I wanted to have, you know, elite, you know, elite winemakers, but I also wanted to have, 
you know, people, um, you know, packaging packaging olives. And then I wanted to do justice to the um, to the subtitle, which is the way we live now. And all of these people in the in this book really have something in common, which is that they think that their story catches something about the way we live we live now. Right. It's it, something about Europe. Before you develop that theme too much for Ooh. the moment, Ben, just but how did you go about locating these people and how did you get their oh, buy-in? Well, look, it took five years. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, kind of it took five years and it, it progressed, you know, to be honest, pretty slowly. No, I didn't just kind of a lot of modern modern books by a lot of uh, by journalists are kind of, you know, free weekends of the Cotswolds, you're done. <laughs> and they're basically extended op-eds based around, you know written in order to do a sort of media campaign so it's not like it's not like that and i use really every journalistic technique that i kind of know of or i think of some people i found online some people i found in shelters some people i found from journalists some people i found in kind of local local papers and you know some people i found from friends but most probably the biggest technique was just finding people through through friends is you know it was how i how i did it friends or, or media contacts and by and large were, were these subjects these people these real people uh yeah. surprised flattered taken aback to be approached by you in the first place well i kind of approached hundreds of people and then i whittled it down to 23 23 people and there were a lot of criteria going going into that you know behind this book there's an almost sociological anthropological grid as i described you know that's that's trying to capture ages of man, regions, class, race, sexuality, that's trying to um, that's trying to also show a lot of the big themes about how we live now, technology, immigration, war. Mm, yeah. And, you know, then there are a lot of criteria, like firstly, do, do I like this person? Does this person like me? Do we get on? It Does this, you know, do I trust this person? Does this person tr- trust me? Is this person going to want to go through the the whole the whole process is this a story that I think fits in my grid and I really kind of found myself pretty quickly trying to fill in an enormous puzzle so because a lot of stories came quite quickly I found myself for example going oh my god I've got to find a woman over the age of 60 who lives in Scandinavia who's mourning her parents how the hell am I going to do that and you know so that was kind of part of filling in and in terms of like getting to know people well People, the method, I'd like to say a little bit about the method that I, I use for this. So mm. when you read a chapter, it will read like a short story yeah. with quotes. But actually, it's it's not fiction. It's in fact, it's more, jo- more journalistic than most journalism you'll read because I work like this. What I do is I find a subject, meet the subject. I'd go, hi, here I am. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make your portrait and I'm going to record you. We're going to spend... You know, it could be a couple of days, it could be a couple of weeks, it could be repeat Zooms together. Mm, yeah. And then you're going to tell me your story. And then I'm going to write it up like a short story with quotes, following as close as possible the the patter and the arc of the story that you've told me that I've got transcripts of. And then I'm going to bring it back to you and you're going to tell me like a New York, like the New Yorker would, like New Yorker phoning people up twice, going, hello, yeah. do you want to be really fact, black or, or Fact-checking, fact all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, well, I take it back to them and you read it and you tell me, actually, no, that's not how I felt at that moment. I felt like this. And then once you've done that, I want you to give me some photos for the book. So the book is actually illustrated with some pics that you've taken of your your mm. life, which means it's actually an amazing photo essay go, going going yeah. through it you know, where you've got like Romanian truck drivers taking pictures of 
their lives on on the road, or you've got Russian gas workers taking pictures of life in uh, northern, uh, you know, the the far north. So that's how it's kind of constructed. And you know, as I said, like everybody in the book want, wanted to be in the book, and they're all kind of like me, and they're all in the sense that they're all story storytellers. So they were. You know, thrilled. Well, to, that, to... well, well, I press you on that because many of the stories, maybe yeah. the majority, depending on how you view these things, are are, are quite sad, if not tragic, stories. Right? There's not a happy read in many cases. These stories, uh, it's not Walt Disney, that's for sure. And I just wonder whether your subjects found it, or was it painful or cathartic, maybe to therapeutic to to talk to you and sort of download all that they'd been through. You know what? Like people have said that about my people always say that about my books. I'm always a bit surprised by it because. Let's take the story of kind of Yonut, the truck driver. It really seems right. to shock people that he's working in these horrible conditions and uh, they go, well, isn't that sad? He's working in these terrible conditions and he's telling us how terrible conditions are. But that story is about him falling in love no, it's on true. the road and, you know, meeting another woman truck driver and they start driving together. And it's about him coming to this realisation that actually doesn't want to be a truck driver anymore. He wants to go back to this village that he comes from with her as far as he's concerned that is that's beautiful and that's successful and he sure as hell wants people to know that the european economy is based on you know exploitation of eastern european men in trucks so he's very happy about that i think there's a certain kind of sort of middle class squeamishness about yeah. no, working conditions there yeah you know, people let's take another example like you know, there's a story that I'm very proud of and of, you know, a Turkish-Austrian couple that meet on Erasmus. And yeah. the chapter's about their love affair and then their fertility yeah. difficulties. And people go, well, isn't that sad? Well, actually, you know, especially people having old, having children older, miscarriages are very common and more common in some ways than they used to be. You know, fertility is an absolutely critical part of life. And yes, they do have a baby in the, at the end. And yeah. that's incredibly important for them to tell that story, to kind of make people not feel so alone when that happens to them. And as no, far as I'm concerned, you've got a baby at the end. No, that's a fair point. I didn't want to give the wrong impression. It's true, because I was I also struck they were, even though the setting can be quite uh, impoverished, shall we say, or stressful or, you know, difficult, challenging, like the, the long-distance truck drive you just uh, referenced. Yeah. They are essentially love stories. They are great rom- romances, and it shows it's, it's kind of without being too pretentious, hopefully a testament to the resilience of the human condition, right? Two people find themselves, and they survive through all sorts of uh, difficulties and, and come out the other end. Thank, well, yeah, thank you, yeah. And like the, so I don't, you know, I think I... I feel that when people say that, actually, they're shocked about learning about the, the working conditions of, you know, a lot of normal working class Europe- Europeans when they when they read that. But I don't think they they actually think the stories themselves are sad. Like the stories are, I actually think, you know, almost all of those stories have, you know, something which the yeah. person telling me them feels is resolution or success or or beauty on their on their on their own terms. Very few of them are. You know, complete, um, complete tragedies. That there are, then there, there are some of those um, uh, in the book. But so, I'll tell, tell you a little bit about kind of you know me and the, the subjects. You know, I think yeah. that's, that's but, sort of well, well, I, well, I sense your frustration coming through just now about you know maybe people don't quite get what you were what you were trying to do, but you have succeeded in doing. To be fair, so what did you have a, an objective when when people finish reading the book, like me for example? What what kind of what do you expect or hope that the reader will take away from book 
I just want to tell you one more thing about how the, pro how the process is done. Is Okay. that I, so I kind of, you know, when I was at school, I used to kind of, you know, paint. Actually, you know, I did sort of, I've got an art kind of AS level and I, I can actually do still paint, but I'm really very bad at it. And I kind of, at one point when I was a teenager, I did think about going to, to art school and I was completely obsessed about, about portrait painting. And Right. the way the portrait painting operates is it operates in very tight constraints in which if I was going to paint your portrait, that has to be, you have to go, yeah, that's me. And everybody else has to go, yeah, that's him. So you're operating in a tight constraint. It's quite different from if I was going to come and write a newspaper article about you, in which all I'd need would be to get factually accurate quotes and all the facts to be accurate. And you could read it and go, who the hell is this person? I don't, I don't, recognize, this, I don't recognize this person. And I was always fascinated by the constraints of portrait portraiture. And I think it leads to incredibly subtle and powerful art. And I'll give you kind of an example of that, which one of the greatest portraits I've ever done is the portrait that Goya did of the Duke of Wellington. When the Duke of Wellington Mm. is just entered Madrid, he's, you know, posing for the, a portrait by the greatest Spanish Mm. artist. Cool regalia, yeah. And Goya gets him in all of his finery and his livery, and clearly he's on the way to the mastery of Europe and Waterloo and beyond. And still, there's something about the eyes in which he just captures this sort of Right. nervous boy from Dublin that can't quite believe this is really happening to him and these sort of slightly pink cheeks of the slightly pink cheeks and this sort of odd look in his face as if he's seen too many battles. And Goya forces not only the Duke of Wellington to go, yeah, that's me, but also all of the subjects to go to, to see all of that. And so that's that's really that's something that I find really, really Really interesting. So the book's kind of suffused with that spirit of of kind of portraiture. Uh, then, so can I come back to your question? Like, what was I? What did I want people? Um, what, what would I want people to do? So people are quite surprised that you know. Obviously, I have a I have a day job. I work at a think tank, the Atlantic Council, and you know, you know, every day on Twitter, I'm kind of telling people what what I think about politics. And, you know, tweeting numbers and facts and figures. And a lot of people have gone to me, but how could you write? You're always telling us what you think about politics. Why have you written a book with no politics in it, no narrator in it? And my kind of answer to that is, is it's all locked up in the subtitle, which is the way we live now, which is, you know, all the great political traditions, the great political philosophies, liberalism, conservatism, socialism, they really are... I think at their essence, a question about how should we live? How should we live now? What is it What is it to live well in modernity? And every person in the book is asking that question. Is this the way we want to live now? Do we want to live like this in climate change or crossing the Mediterranean, trying to get to a better life or finding migrants, um, you know, sort of freezing in the Alps, trying to get into France? Like, do we want to live? Do we want to live like this? And... For me, that is the greatest political question of, of all. And I think politics is quite distinct from policy. Like in my kind of day job, I do policy. I might, you know, help come up with some kind of clever little solution within constraints for a mobility deal between the EU and the and the UK. That's not like questioning the fundamentals of how we live now. In order to do that, like you need to write a kind of book like book like this, and you need people to come with you, like all the people in the book who want. you've got something to say that questions the way we live now so that was the the purpose uh, of the of the book And but you stand back, Kate. So you say it's a narrative of third person. You are not in the book. You're just 
you are a narrator of sorts. So we, without being again, without being too pretentious, did you at some part you want to give these people a voice? Did you, or at least want people like us, the readers, to realize that there are people like that out there that we would not normally be aware of on our radar screen? Uh, yeah, well, I think that should be the purpose of journalism. Like, um, you know, the journalism that I think is. You know, I think the journalism that's the most important is the journalism that gives a voice to a, to to the voiceless and doesn't give more voice to celebs, frankly. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's yeah, definitely that was re- that's really re- really part of it. And I, I think that we live in a particular age where look, the weak ties that we used to have in kind of urban sort of working class communities or rural villages have sort of dissolved and. We live in a very kind of isolated age where technology companies are determined to kind of encase us in kind of in sort of, um, you know, VR glasses. And we just don't really know very much about what our ne- neighbours or people around us yeah. and, uh, are actually doing. Now, for me, it's really summed up by the Amazon delivery guy. There's an Amazon delivery guy yeah, that probably comes yeah. to most listeners of this podcast to their home yeah. probably every day. Yeah. Hello. Thanks. Box is there. Like, who is that person and sort of how, how do they live? I think most people would be very hard pressed to say who that person is and how they live. And that's why, you know, one of the chapters I think is really important is the chapter about Berlin, you know, where we see it through the eyes of a Syrian refugee who's, you know, deeply traumatized, having flashbacks and having almost drowned in the Aegean and his wife's at home, very seriously depressed. And he's coming to you, knocking on the door, like delivering you that tough, tough brush that you ordered yeah. <laughs> for, you know, living in the soft authoritarianism of the app or the app just dringing at him if he so much as dithers for more than five minutes or takes the wrong turning on the road. Well, maybe a final question. I'll, I'll just try this on you, Ben, because you're saying you have a you have a day job where you're a policy politics expert guru, and then you are in this, this is Europe book, uh, just quote unquote, the narrator. Although is a way where the two can come together because not every single vignette, a story essay that you write is about people moving across borders, but there are quite a few where people do, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, do across borders, sometimes endangering themselves and their families in the process. Uh, c- clearly, Europe has a huge migration problem, mm-hmm. uh, and it seems pretty intractable, right? When we heard this weekend that the Dutch government has fallen, Mark Rutte has resigned and all that kind of stuff, uh, just the latest uh, uh, episode in this long going, on- ongoing saga. Do you see Europe writ large, maybe not just the European Union, maybe Europe also including the United Kingdom as well, for that matter, uh, getting anywhere close to uh, seriously addressing the fundamental issues surrounding migration, which is clearly getting a bigger, bigger issue and challenge for all politicians? Well, I'm not a politician, so I don't have to pretend that there aren't any kind of contradictions here and there aren't any painful painful trade-offs. And I think that the future of future of Europe is going to look a bit like this. I think it's going to be a kind of permanent referendum on what Europeans think is most important. That tradition that comes to them of democracy and, sorry, that tradition that comes to them of human rights and the yeah. sacredness of, of life and the willingness to protect people and to welcome people, welcome people in. And that's a deep European tradition or Another tradition, which is that tradition, you know, which is actually bound up in democracy in some ways of national identities and nations having their own states and being able to decide, you know, who they are and who comes in and who who doesn't. I think that both of those traditions are in a deep tension. And I think that European elections going forward are going to be a permanent referendum on what what different countries at different times think is the, the most most important and I think that 
kind of regardless, like one of the spirits that the book was written in is that the book that Europe is clearly blurring with Africa and, and Asia. And I don't just mean demographically, you know, but also economically and religiously, uh, climatically in a lot of ways. And also because Europe just isn't a fortress which sort of serenely floats or it sort of semi floats in a corner on the map. Actually, Europe's been deeply transformed by the war in Syria and is mm. a lot of the book is kind of full of stories of refugees from uh mm. from Syria so I think we I think we need to kind of change the way we we sort of think about Europe and you know one of the things that I think that a reader will, will get reading this they'll notice how many stories might begin in West Africa and end in Europe yeah. or yeah. begin in Siberia and come in come into uh Europe so I wanted to show the kind of blurriness of the modern you know, the modern European uh, condition. And I wanted also to show the kind of diversity of the immigrant I experience right. to Europe. Like it's obviously Europe's transforming. Like France in 1950 was 0.05% Muslim. Today, you know, some, some estimates put it around 10% Muslim. But it would be stupid to think that that was just the same green on, the bar, on a pie chart. Actually, that's incredible diversity of human experience and so you know just in the in the book we have you know four portraits of four different you know muslim men one's migrant from tunisia he grows up secular marries a uh semi-secular marries a french you know sort of white ethnic french woman and then goes on a journey to becoming a salafist yeah one of them is a syrian refugee who's gay he's got a queer identity comes to europe and then basically ends up performing drag europe for yeah. him is this kind of scene of uh of liberty one of them's a Syrian refugee who wants to come to Europe, wants to be an actor, couldn't give a hoot about religion or national identity, ends up being a porn star. One of them is, you know, sort of married man, kind of uh, sort of hopes to be a family man, his wife's pregnant, and he kind of wishes he could get out of Europe because he's just delivering Amazon packages, dreams of nothing better to go to Dubai. And I think that I wanted to capture that sort of diversity, a diversity there to sort of shape people out of kind of easy pie chart stereotypes. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. This is Europe is a fascinating book. Ben Judah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.